0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me this week as we read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 120 through 155. If you would like to skip to the second half of the episode, please take a look at the episode notes, and I'll note the approximate minute mark where I start the commentary. We begin with paragraph 120, the Canon of Scripture. It was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of the sacred books. This complete list is called the Canon of Scripture. It includes 46 books for the Old Testament, 45 if we count Jeremiah and Lamentations as one, and 27 for the new. The Old Testament includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, Tobit, Judith, Esther, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, also known as Ecclesiasticus. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Baruch, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Naum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The New Testament include the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of St Paul to the Romans, First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, the Letter to the Hebrews, the Letters of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude and Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse. The Old Testament. The Old Testament is an indispensable part of sacred scripture. Its books are divinely inspired and retain a permanent value, for the Old Covenant has never been revoked. Indeed, the economy of the Old Testament was deliberately so oriented that it should prepare for and declare in prophecy the coming of Christ, Redeemer of all men. Even though they contain matters imperfect and provisional, the books of the Old Testament bear witness to the whole divine pedagogy of God's saving love. These writings are a storehouse of sublime teaching on God and of sound wisdom on human life, as well as a wonderful treasury of prayers. In them, too, the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. Christians venerate the Old Testament as true word of God. The church has always vigorously opposed the idea of rejecting the Old Testament under the pretext that the new has rendered it void. This is known as Marcionism. The New Testament, the word of God, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, is set forth and displays its power in a most wonderful way in the writings of the New Testament which hand on the ultimate truth of God's revelation. Their central object is Jesus Christ, God's incarnate Son, his acts, teachings, passion, and glorification, and his church's beginnings under the Spirit's guidance. The Gospels are the heart of all the scriptures because they are our principal source for the life and teaching of the incarnate Word, our Savior. We can distinguish three stages in the formation of the Gospels. First, the life and teaching of Jesus. The Church holds firmly that the four Gospels, whose historicity she unhesitatingly affirms, faithfully hand on what Jesus, the Son of God, while he lived among men, really did and taught for their eternal salvation, until the day when he was taken up. Second, the oral tradition. For after the ascension of the Lord, the apostles handed on to their hearers what he had said and done, but with that fuller understanding which they, instructed by the glorious events of Christ, and enlightened by the spirit of truth, now enjoyed. Third, the written Gospels. The sacred authors, in writing the four Gospels, selected certain of the many elements which had been handed on, either orally or already in written form. Others they synthesized or explained with an eye to the situation of the churches while sustaining the form of preaching, but always in such a fashion that they have told us the honest truth about Jesus. The fourfold gospel holds a unique place in the church, as is evident both in the veneration which the liturgy accords it, and in the surpassing attraction it has exercised on the saints at all times. There is no doctrine which could be better, more precious and more splendid than the text of the gospel. Behold and retain what our Lord and Master, Christ, has taught by his words and accomplished by his deeds. But above all, it's the gospels that occupy my mind when I'm at prayer. My poor soul has so many needs, and yet this is the one thing needful. I'm always finding fresh lights there, hidden and enthralling meanings. The unity of the Old and New Testaments. The Church, as early as apostolic times, and then constantly in her tradition, has illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the two Testaments through typology, which discerns in God's works of the Old Covenant prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate Son. Christians, therefore, read the Old Testament in the light of Christ crucified and risen. Such typological reading discloses the inexhaustible content of the Old Testament, but it must not make us forget that the Old Testament retains its own intrinsic value as revelation reaffirmed by our Lord himself. Besides, the New Testament has to be read in the light of the Old, Early Christian catechesis made constant use of the Old Testament. As an old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. Typology indicates the dynamic movement toward the fulfillment of the divine plan, when God will be everything to everyone. Nor do the calling of the patriarchs and the exodus from Egypt, for example, lose their own value in God's plan from the mere fact that they were intermediate stages. Sacred Scripture in the Life of the Church. And such is the force and power of the word of God that it can serve the church as her support and vigor and the children of the church as strength for their faith, food for the soul, and a pure and lasting font of spiritual life. Hence, access to sacred scripture ought to be open wide to the Christian faithful. Therefore, the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. The ministry of the word, too, Pastoral preaching, catechetics, and all forms of Christian instruction, among which the liturgical homily should hold pride of place, is healthily nourished and thrives in holiness through the word of Scripture. The Church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine Scriptures. Ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. In brief... All sacred scripture is but one book, and this one book is Christ, because all divine scripture speaks of Christ, and all divine scripture is fulfilled in Christ. The sacred scriptures contain the word of God, and because they are inspired, they are truly the word of God. God is the author of sacred scripture because he inspired its human authors. He acts in them and by means of them. He thus gives assurance that their writings teach without error his saving truth interpretation of the inspired scripture must be attentive above all to what god wants to reveal through the sacred authors for our salvation what comes from the spirit is not fully understood except by the spirit's action the church accepts and venerates as inspired the 46 books of the old testament and the 27 books of the new the four gospels occupy a central place because christ jesus is their center The unity of of the two testaments proceeds from the unity of God's plan and his revelation. The Old Testament prepares for the New, and the New Testament fulfills the Old. The two shed light on each other. Both are true word of God. The church has always venerated the divine scriptures as she venerated the body of the Lord, both nourish and govern the whole Christian life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Chapter 3, Man's Response to God By his revelation, the invisible God from the fullness of his love addresses men as his friends and moves among them in order to invite and receive them into his own company. The adequate response to this invitation is faith. By faith, man completely submits his will, excuse me, his intellect and his will to God. With his whole being, man gives his assent to God the revealer. Sacred Scripture calls this human response to God, the author of Revelation, the obedience of faith. Article 1, I believe, the obedience of faith. To obey, from the Latin ob audir, to hear or listen to, in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard, because its truth is guaranteed by God, who is truth itself. Abraham is the model of such obedience offered us by the Sacred Scripture. The Virgin Mary is its most perfect embodiment. Abraham, father of all who believe. The letter to the Hebrews in its great eulogy of the faith of Israel's ancestors lays special emphasis on Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was to go. By faith, he lived as a stranger and pilgrim in the promised land. By faith, Sarah was given to conceive the son of the promise. And by faith, Abraham offered his only son in sacrifice. Abraham thus fulfills the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Because he was strong in his faith, Abraham became the father of all who believe. The Old Testament is rich in witnesses to this faith. The letter to the Hebrews proclaims its eulogy of the exemplary faith of the ancestors who received divine approval. Yet God had foreseen something better for us, the grace of believing in his son Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Mary, blessed is she who believed. The Virgin Mary most perfectly embodies the obedience of faith. By faith, Mary welcomes the tidings and promise brought by the angel Gabriel, believing that with God nothing will be impossible, and so giving her assent. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Elizabeth greeted her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It is for this faith that all generations have called Mary blessed. Throughout her life and until her last ordeal, when Jesus, her son, died on the cross, Mary's faith never wavered. She never ceased to believe in the fulfillment of God's word, and so the church venerates in Mary the purest realization of faith. I know whom I have believed, to believe in God alone. Faith is, first of all, a personal adherence of man to God. At the same time, and inseparably, it is a free ascent to the whole truth that God has revealed— As personal adherence to God and assent to his truth, Christian faith differs from our faith in any human person. It is right and just to entrust oneself wholly to God and to believe absolutely what he says. It would be futile and false to place such faith in a creature. To believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For a Christian, believing in God cannot be separated from believing in the one he sent, his beloved Son, in whom the Father is well-pleased. God tells us to listen to him. The Lord himself said to his disciples, Believe in God, believe also in me. We can believe in Jesus Christ because he is himself God, the word made flesh. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Because he has seen the Father, Jesus Christ is the only one who knows him and can reveal him. To believe in the Holy Spirit. One cannot believe in Jesus Christ without sharing in His Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals to men who Jesus is. For no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, who searches everything, even the depths of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Only God knows God completely. We believe in the Holy Spirit because He is God. The church never ceases to proclaim her faith in one, only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The characteristics of faith. Faith is a grace. When St. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus declared to him that this revelation did not come from flesh and blood, but from my Father who is in heaven. Faith is a gift of God, a supernatural virtue infused by him. Before this faith can be exercised, man must have the grace of God to move and assist him. He must have the interior helps of the Holy Spirit, who moves the heart and converts it to God, who opens the eyes of the mind and makes it easy for all to accept and believe the truth. Faith is a human act. Believing is possible only by grace and the interior helps of the Holy Spirit. But it is no less true that believing is an authentically human act. Trusting in God and cleaving to the truths he has revealed are contrary neither to human freedom nor to human reason. Even in human relations, it is not contrary to our dignity to believe what other persons tell us about themselves and their intentions or to trust their promises, for example, when a man and a woman marry, to share a communion of life with one another. If this is so, still less is it contrary to our dignity to yield by faith the full submission of intellect and will to God who reveals and to share in an interior communion with him. In faith, the human intellect and will cooperate with divine grace. Believing is an act of the intellect assenting to the divine truth by command of the will moved by God through grace. This brings us to the end of our reading of our catechism selection for today. We'll take a brief break and then discuss how Catholicism is a religion of both and. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. In my family of origin, I'm the oldest of four now adult children, and there's an eight-year space between kids number three and four. So I was 14, my sister 11, and my brother nearly eight when our youngest brother, Matthew, was born. Matthew, the baby of the family, who now stands six feet, eight inches tall. Uh, Because he's the tallest person, my kids know, he's become superlative in their minds of other dimensions of life. So, to my five and a half year old, four year old, and now two year old, he's not only the tallest, but he's the funniest. Right after daddy, he's the funniest. The most handsome, the smartest, and now it's my son's goal in life to be, quote unquote, as tall as Uncle Maddie. If he gets there, he will have made it in life. So, you know, it's good to be Uncle Maddie. So when Matthew was still in utero, my parents brought us all to an ultrasound appointment and we excitedly asked the doctor, 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 is it a boy or a girl? He looked at us, smiled and simply said, exactly. And walked out of the room. We were like, what? Wait, exactly. Is it a boy or a girl? While that question did in fact have a decisive answer, my brother, a baby boy, arrived. The story has always stuck with me because it's a reminder to me that the answers to our questions aren't always so clear cut. I don't mean that in a relativistic way as though what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and let's just go on our merry ways as though it's all good. No, truth is a reality We have concepts and ideas to try to describe and understand reality, and our concepts and ideas are either right or wrong about those realities. Um, I had students who believed that Buddhists achieved nirvana, Christians went to heaven or hell, and atheists died and then were buried in the ground, and that was it. To their credit, I don't think they thought about it too deeply. Uh, They had grown up in a very relativistic culture, where they were taught tolerance and not to offend anyone by challenging other people's beliefs. And they had kind of unconsciously settled into this way of thinking about belief in this life leading to a certain reality in the afterlife. So I would challenge them and say, wow, that's great news. I'm going to believe that I can live my life however I please. And then my view of the afterlife is one of heavenly bliss. And people I don't like don't get to be there. They would say, but Mrs. Daugherty, we thought you liked everybody. I would say, no, no, no. I love everybody, but I don't like everybody. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're missing the point. And then we drill down a bit on how just like this earth is not a choose your own adventure. So for example, gravity exists. And if you don't believe it, uh, don't believe in it, well, heavy things will still fall to the ground. Similarly, the afterlife is a reality, and either Buddhists have a more accurate understanding of it, or the Christian idea of it is more in line with what it's actually like, or atheists are right, and the rest of us are wasting our time. So fingers crossed, it's not option three, says the Catholic theology teacher, who is not only wrong and has staked her life on it, but has taught hundreds and hundreds of students the wrong thing. Okay, hopefully it's not option three. Um, But I say this, this is a long way of saying that I'm not encouraging relativism or the belief that truth is relative to the person, the situation, etc. No, reality is real, and we can be right about it, wrong about it, or somewhere in between the two. What I am saying is that when it comes to our understanding of God and the Catholic faith, the way to understanding the truth is not always so cut and dry. The truth is cut and dry. Or we could say it's real, it's distinct, it's certain. But our path to it is not always A plus B equals C or X minus Y equals Z. So recall from a previous episode, Jesus teaches the truth by saying, come, follow me. He could have laid out the plan for each of his followers from start to finish. He could have shown them the blueprints and the time-elapse photography of how it would all get built before they embarked on their journey with him, but Jesus doesn't do that. He simply says, come, follow me, and then you'll see it unfold over time. Recall that the God of revelation is a God of gradual revelation. Some of you might be familiar with Bishop Barron. He's one of the auxiliary bishops of the Diocese of Los Angeles, and he's the face of the Word on Fire Ministries, an incredible and far-reaching ministry that evangelizes through social media. So he says that one of the great errors of our time is what he calls scientism. He admires and upholds and sings the praises of the sciences, the scientific method, and the amazing advances that have been made through the sciences. But he cautions against what he calls scientism, or the reduction of all knowledge and all truth, to that which can be known and measured by the sciences." He uses the examples of love and friendship and wisdom and virtue. These are real things, these are knowable realities, but they can't be quantified and experimented upon like, let's say, the digestive system or a virus. Sadly, many in our current culture dismiss the study of realities that don't fall within the realm of science because they claim that they're not as knowable and therefore not the proper objects of serious study. What a loss for our culture. As you can imagine, and as you may have had people tell you, the study of God and of the Catholic faith fall victim to this scientistic way of approaching life. So you might have been told, oh, that's nice, you're Christian, but you don't think the story of creation in the book of Genesis is real, right? I mean, where do the dinosaurs fit into that seven-day time frame? Or something like, that's such a nice story, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, but you don't really believe that Jesus took a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and really multiplied them to feed thousands and thousands of people. I mean, that's scientifically impossible. Or lastly, you might have heard something like, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. That's such a nice way to live. He was a really wise teacher, a man who really seemed to be a cut above. I'm sorry, what's that? You believe he's God? And that he literally died and then literally rose from the dead. I thought that was like a symbolic story. New people use to say something like Jesus's teachings live on. If the teachings of the faith can't fit into neat and tidy boxes, many have a hard time accepting them. Remember, we're dealing with an infinite God and we are finite creatures. My kids have a pet fish named Sarah, Sarah the fish. And she sits on the kitchen counter and, I suppose, observes the comings and goings of our day-to-day. I'm not sure how fish brains work, but let's say, for the sake of the analogy, that she realizes she's a fish, this little beta fish, happens to be a very self-aware, very knowledgeable little fishy, and we are not. She sees that she has fins while we have arms and legs. She realizes that she's in water, and we are not. Now, if she could figure out that much, good on her, because she lives in isolation with nothing but food and water. And even the food is scarce in our house. My husband is the only one in the house who remembers to feed her. And when he goes away on business for a few days, he'll kind of wave to Sarah with a sad little look in his eye and say, hope you're still here when I get back. Good luck. I'm like, babe, I've got my hands full with three small humans. Sorry if I overlook the fish. Excuse me, Sarah the fish for a few days so imagine Sarah has figured out on her own the difference between fins and arms the different uses of water she swims in it while we apparently drink it now imagine explaining to her the existence of Paris France and how an HVAC system works and then why so many humans get up at the crack of dawn on Black Friday to do their Christmas shopping and while you're at it try to imagine explaining what quote-unquote Friday is and what quote-unquote Christmas means I'm guessing Sarah the fish does not understand these concepts, nor could her little fish brain ever understand them. Watch, she'll be standing next to Jesus on my judgment day. Thanks a lot for making fun of my fish brain on your cute little podcast, Becca. And also, for all those times you didn't feed me, you'll now spend 500 years in purgatory. No! So, like Sarah the fish cannot possibly understand the intricacies of humanity, We, finite human beings, cannot possibly understand the intricacies of God, who is infinite. The good news, again, is that this infinite God is a God of revelation. So God not only stands right up against the fishbowl and teaches the fish, he jumps into the fishbowl, lives and swims, swims among the fish, and then suffers and dies, and yes, literally resurrects to new life for love of the fish. St. Paul writes, we see as though in a mirror dimly, but then we will know as we are fully known. God gives us real information, real insights into the truth so that we can live according to it and be happy. But it's not until we get to heaven one day, God willing, that we'll know as we're fully known. Ah, that's what you meant. That's what it was all about. Let's return to those questions often asked when it comes to belief in the stories recounted in the Bible. The Genesis creation accounts, Jesus' miracles, such as the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the resurrection. Can you imagine if Christians did not believe these stories were true? Oh, no, 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 no. We just believe some of the teachings of the Bible are true. Wait, what? So God and the human authors of the Bible wrote down some true stuff and some false stuff? Or, oh, yeah, 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 like 60% of the Bible is true. Wait, what? How do you know which parts are true and which parts are false? It makes God into a wild-eyed lunatic. I'll mix them up here, and then I'll give them a little truth there, and then I'll really confuse them and straight-up lie to them here. This is so fun. (laughs) We as Catholics believe that everything, everything in the Bible is true. Start to finish, truth, truth, and nothing but the truth. Again, imagine that it's not the case, that everything, even 10% is not true. What a sham that would be. If you believe any part of the Bible is a lie, false, wrong, then don't accept any other part of it. Throw the whole thing out. Okay, now cue Sarah the fish standing next to Jesus on my judgment day. And remember when you said to throw the Bible out? That's another 500 years in purgatory for you. (laughs) Sarah, you sound angry. In reality, why accept parts of the Bible and not the whole when it comes to us as a package deal? Accept the whole because it's all true. The God of Revelation is a truth teller. And here's where we have to take off the blinders of scientism, the erroneous view that science and the scientific method are the only objective ways of arriving at knowledge, and understand that the Bible is true, start to finish, but that truth is conveyed in a variety of ways. First, as we read in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 120, there are 73 books in the Bible, 46 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The Bible is more like a library as it contains ta biblia, which is Greek for the books. These books are written by a variety of authors spanning centuries, who, as we read last week in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 106, made full use of their own faculties and powers while writing, as we read last week in Catechism of the Catholic Church 105, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's an instance of the beautiful Catholic both-and approach, rather than the either-or approach. So, who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit or the human authors? Exactly. Wait, what? The answer doesn't seem to be so cut and dry. Paragraph 105 continues, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author. While paragraph 106 asserts it was as true authors that they consigned to writing these books. Second, these various writers, as can be said of the various authors found in a library, write in different genres. So in the Bible, you will find history, allegory, poetry, songs, moral exhortations, hyperbole, and lots more. For just three installments of nine ninety nine, 99 you too could own Tabilia. All of these genres, each in their own way, communicate truth. Growing up, I loved reading Aesop's fables. I still refer to The Boy Who Cried Wolf and to The Fox and the Grapes. Maybe because some of those lessons apply to some of my children, but not once, not as a kid, not as an adult, did I ever think there was literally a talking fox who jumped up on his hind legs to try and eat a bunch of grapes. But I've always known that that story conveys truth. Like Aesop's fables, there are numerous passages in the Bible that convey truth using allegorical or symbolic language. Recall in last week's reading of the Catechism that the truth of the scriptures are conveyed using different senses. So Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 115 through 117, outline the two overarching senses of scripture, the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And then the Catechism goes on to distinguish among three spiritual senses, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture, and all other senses are based on the literal. The allegorical deals with signs and types that point to other realities. The moral teaches us how to live, and the anagogical points to what are known as the last things. The last things that each of us will ever see are death, judgment, and then heaven or hell. Those are the four last things. The Catechism gives the example of the parting of the Red Sea being a passage that we can read allegorically in that it's a sign that points to Christ's victory over death and to Christian baptism. Passages such as the Ten Commandments and parables such as the parable of the prodigal son can be read in the moral sense in that they teach us how to live. The parable of the weeds and the wheat is a passage that can be read in the anagogical sense and then it points to death judgment, heaven, and hell. Recall that in this parable, a man has a plot of land in which weeds and wheat grow up together. Eventually, they are cut down, aka death, separated, aka judgment, and the wheat is stored in the barn, aka heaven, and the weeds are burned up in the fire, aka hell. As you can imagine, many passages can be read using different senses, A passage may be both allegorical and moral. Another bit may be both moral and anagogical. Another may be all of the above. All, however, are rooted in the literal sense. So let's return to the Genesis creation accounts, one of the deeply misunderstood passages of the Bible. Is it true? Of course it's true. God doesn't give us lies and falsehoods. He gives us truth, truth, and nothing but the truth. Do we read it in the literal sense, in that the words of the author convey that God created the world out of nothing, in an orderly and beautiful way? Yes. Do we believe that the world was created in seven 24-hour days and there's no room in the Bible for the Big Bang Theory, dinosaurs, and evolution? No, we do not believe that. When it comes to the Genesis accounts of creation, there are not one, but two. So in Genesis chapter 1, we read the first account of creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read the second account of creation. This should indicate to us, right from the beginning of the Bible, that we're not dealing with a history book or a science textbook. We're dealing with divine revelation. God's communication of himself and his plan for us. Some might say, well, which is more true, the first account or the second account? As you might have guessed, the answer is exactly. It's both and. It's not either or. I find it helpful to keep in mind a great quote from C.S. Lewis who said, myth reveals a truth that's too big to fit into a fact. So I'll say that again. Myth reveals a truth that's too big to fit into a fact. Myth conveys truth in a way that's not scientifically quantifiable, and so many have a hard time believing it's true. It's true, but that truth is conveyed in an allegorical way. And if it's true, then it won't contradict science or any other rational approach to understanding creation. So when God says in the first account of creation, let there be light, not only does that not contradict the Big Bang Theory, it fits beautifully with it. And fun fact, it was a Catholic priest, Father George Lemaitre, who came up with the Big Bang Theory. In reading Genesis, Using the allegorical sense, we don't necessarily believe that God created the world in seven 24-hour days, but we do believe, as the story communicates, that God brought creation into being in an orderly, intentional way, as the seven days represent. The dinosaurs fit into this allegorical interpretation of Genesis, as does the theory of evolution, potentially. We believe that God infused a rational soul into man and woman, setting them apart from the rest of creation— Whether or not man and woman had evolved from lower life forms before God infused a rational soul into them, we don't know. But the two beliefs, belief in the Genesis creation account and belief in the theory of evolution are not mutually exclusive. They can both point to the truth. So if it comes down to the question of faith or reason, the answer is exactly. Wait, what? If truth is true, then it's true all around. And the answer is not either faith or reason, it's both and. We just read in the first half of the episode in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 154, believing is possible only by grace and the interior helps of the Holy Spirit, but it is no less true that believing is an authentically human act. Trusting in God and cleaving to the truths he has revealed are contrary neither to human freedom nor human reason. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 155, goes on to say, in faith, the human intellect and will cooperate with divine grace. There's often a misunderstanding of faith that in order to believe in God, one must turn off his or her brain and blindly follow the teachings of the church. This couldn't be further from the truth, and how beautifully the catechism states it. Believing is an authentically human act, contrary neither to human freedom nor to human reason. So if you're wondering if God wants you to use your intellect and free will or to walk by faith, if you've been asked if you believe the Bible is true or if science is real, the answer is exactly. Next week, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 156 through 184. We'll talk about the concept of heresy and how the church works faithfully to hand on divine revelation so that heresy doesn't creep in. We will also talk about St. Nicholas, known to many as Santa Claus, and how he was a hardcore defender of the Catholic faith. He's remembered for having a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. But did you know that he punched a heretic in the face? Stay tuned and see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.